0: Hosea chapter 8, if you'll turn there. I'm really enjoying Hosea. It's been a great study. It's an example of how God is willing to repeat himself again and again to people that are not interested in listening to him. And uh, repetition is God's grace to us, that he repeats himself we we don't like repeating ourselves and but God is he is gentle and he is compassionate and he's patient and he's willing to repeat himself even when we run from him. So praise the Lord for that. Let's pray. Thank you Lord for your word that it's true that you are our good shepherd and you have many things to say and you've given us the Holy Spirit who helps us to understand them. Thank you Lord for your truth, thank you for your wisdom. And we pray that as we study your scriptures today, you would speak to each one of our hearts that we would be still before you. We would hear your word and walk in obedience to it. In Jesus' name, amen. There is so much corrective prophecy in the minor and major prophets. And say, well, why is there so much corrective prophecy? There's predictive, it's speaking of something that's to come, but there's a lot of correction didactic prophecy, and the reason is, is because people weren't hearing it. They weren't listening, and so God repeated himself. He spoke again, and people grew weary of the message, and they hated the messengers, and we all love the comforting passages of Scripture, the, the silky, soft comforts that we have, but you know, you can't sow without, you can't sow with thread alone you can't sew with the silk alone it must have the sharp needle that pierces the fabric again and again so that that silk thread is drawn through and it closes that rent that tear so if we want to be made whole if we want to be restored there's an there's the sharp word that will pierce us and when we yield and submit to it to what god is saying then that healing and restoration can begin Otherwise, if we are like kind of dulling that needle and not allowing it to pierce us, then there's still a process that has to take place. We can get tired of things, can't we? We can get tired of even good things. Your favorite meal, you can just be over it at some point. And uh, think about the children of Israel. Instead of being glad that God brought them out of slavery In Egypt, you would think they were slaves in Egypt for hundreds of years. God brought them out. They'd be happy forever. They'd be happy to do whatever God said from then on. But it wasn't days into the wilderness when they were complaining about, where's the water? Have you brought us out here to die? And then God gave them food in the wilderness, and they grew so tired of manna, they were concocting all these new recipes to try to dress it up in different ways because they were just sick of it. But see, they needed that for 40 years to learn to trust God, to rely upon God. And so he fed them with manna. So day by day, they were trusting in his provision. They were looking to him to supply their needs. People grew weary of the message and it seemed like on an endless loop. Repent, humble yourselves, seek the Lord and it was repeated because they weren't listening. Uh, there's, there's one incident of King Ahab with Micaiah, the son of Imlah, where Jehoshaphat says, isn't there like a, because the priests of Baal were giving their uh, prophecies, and Jehoshaphat's like, all right, is there like a real prophet that we can talk to today? And he says, well, there's one, but I hate him. 2 Chronicles 18, he says, there is still one man by whom we may inquire of the Lord, but I hate him because he never prophesies good concerning me, but always evil. And why was he continuing to prophesy evil? Because Ahab continued to persist in evil. If he would have repented and turned from it, the message would have changed. But because he wasn't changing, the message stayed the same. Friends, the children of Israel needed to hear it again and again. Ahab needed to hear it. Again again, and we need to hear it. We need to hear about our need to repent, our need to rely upon God for forgiveness and hope. Repetition is God's grace to us. So Hosea chapter eight, starting at verse one. Set the trumpet to your mouth. He shall come like an eagle against the house of the Lord because they have transgressed my covenant and rebelled against my law. Israel will cry to me, my God, we know you. Israel has rejected the good the enemy will pursue him. Trumpets were often used to raise alarm or to guide the movement of troops. Uh, The book of Joel, chapter two, verse one, it has a similar ring to it. It says, blow the trumpet in Zion and sound an alarm in my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble for the day of the Lord is coming for it is at hand. God said that a day of judgment was coming against his own people And against his own land because they broke his covenant. They rebelled against him. They turned to idols. It wasn't like they crossed the line once and he warned them. They kept crossing the line. Century after century of departing from the Lord. God's grace, his forbearance, it was distorted as approval. And their prosperity seemed to confirm that, hey, we're being blessed. We're doing the right thing. God is blessing the works of our hands as if... He was approving of their idolatry, which he was not. And prophet Hosea, he warns, God's gonna swoop down like an eagle. Uh, In Sydney, we might say like an aggressive magpie in September. Like, and, and that's more disconcerting and annoying than deadly. But God's swooping down on them. He's like, I'm like an eagle against you. You're like a sluggish, overfed mouse in a meadow in the middle. And I'll just, when you're not looking, I'm just going to swoop down on you. So just a warning there. Sound the alarm. And I believe the people of the northern kingdom would have been upset at the suggestion that they had departed from the Lord. Because what about all of our sacrifices? What about us keeping the feasts? What about our prayers and our offerings? What about the things that we don't do? What about the things that we do in obedience to the law? But see, the law was not given to show a person how righteous they are. It was to show that you were a sinner and needed forgiveness and salvation. The law was never given to prove your own goodness. It was the the exact opposite. It showed that we have broken the law, and the only way we can have fellowship with God is through uh, the shedding of blood. Without the shedding of blood, there's no repentance, no remission of sins. And he says, Israel will cry to me, my God, we know you. Doesn't Doesn't that sound familiar to something Jesus said in the New Testament? During the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 7, 21 through 23, Jesus said, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, and done many wonders in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Doing God's will, doing the things that please him, It's evidence that you know God. You can claim to know God. You can talk a big game about knowing God. But if you don't follow him and you don't obey him, then you don't love him. You're not trusting him. Jesus told a parable uh, to elders and priests about a father who owned a field, and he talked to his sons about working. He's like, hey, I want you to work for me tomorrow. And he goes to the first one and he says, "Uh, work, work in my field tomorrow. And the kid's like, nah, I'm busy. But later, he regretted it, and he went. But the second son, he says, work with me on my, my field tomorrow. And he says, I'll go. But he never showed up. So Jesus poses the question. He says, which one did the will of his father? And they said, well, the one who went. And he says, exactly. It wasn't the one who gave the right answer. It was the one who repented and did the right thing later. It showed that his heart was right in repenting. He said the wrong thing. He had the wrong heart at the beginning. And so Jesus says, you know, tax collectors and harlots coming to heaven before you, Pharisee, because they repented when they heard the word. They did the wrong thing, yes, but they repented. He was their savior. God provided for his people. He protected them, but they rejected him. They set up idols and worshiped them instead. God showed his supremacy over all the idols of Egypt by overthrowing them all and yet God's people brought idols out of Egypt, and they continued to add to their collection. So he said, I'm going to prove my supremacy over your new idols by allowing your enemies to overthrow you. Verse 4, they set up kings, but not by me, they made princes, but I did not acknowledge them. From their silver and gold, they made idols for themselves that they might be cut off. Your calf is rejected, O Samaria. My anger is aroused against them. How long until they attain to innocence? For from Israel is even this, a workman made it, and it is not God, but the calf of Samaria shall be broken to pieces. Children of Israel did have no other gods because God was their sovereign When Samuel was a prophet and judge over Israel, the people came to him and said, you know, your sons, they're not like you. They don't walk in your ways. We want to have a king over us like all the other nations. We want a king to lead us and to go before us. God had made Israel unique among all the nations because he would be their God. He would fight their battles. But they had this leaning towards Israel following after the nations around them, following their examples. And I think this tendency to mark others is even in Australian politics. We hear things like um, we're on the wrong side of history or we need to catch up with the rest of the world or these kind of comments where we're looking out there and we're seeing legislation that's in other countries and we say, well, we should follow suit. We don't want to be the only ones who, who aren't getting with the program type thing. And I think that was happening in, in uh, Israel It's decent national policy for Australia to observe political reforms of other nations. Don't get me wrong, but Israel was a unique case. They had made a covenant with God, and they were to follow him. They weren't to be looking around to see how how the Egyptians set up their government or the, uh, the gods that the Philistines worshipped. That wasn't to govern their decisions at all. It was God and his word that he had given them, that they agreed to. After the division between the northern and southern kingdoms, Jeroboam, the king of the north, he was concerned that because the temple was located in in the land of Judah, that the people would become allied with Judah again. And so he set up two calves in the northern kingdom and he said, it's too hard for you to go all the way down to Jerusalem. So worship God at these shrines that I've set up. It's convenient. And so he worshiped there, and the people followed suit. Having been made prosperous by God, they used their gold, their silver, to make these idols that they worshiped and gave themselves to. And God said, I reject the pseudo-worship. It's not an obedience to me. And his anger was justly aroused against them. And he says, I'm gonna see your idols broken to pieces. And people might say, Well, it's a thought that counts, right? God knows my heart. And that was exactly the problem. God knew their hearts, and he saw their wickedness, that they had rebelled against him, that they were offering these sacrifices under the pretense of worshiping him, but they were only getting glory for themselves. They weren't glorifying God, because if they were glorifying God, they would have been obeying him and doing the things that pleased him. So he says, I reject your calf, even as I rejected Saul, from reigning over Israel. Um, And that that was what came to mind as I was like, well, yeah, he rejected that calf. And early on, when King Saul was the first king of Israel, he was rejected from being king because he was lifted up with pride and departed from God. Idolatry, it raises nothings to the level of God and it brings God down to the level of a relic or some object object that you carry around. Remember when Jonathan and his armor bearer, led by God, attacked that Philistine garrison in 1 Samuel? Well, Saul at that time, he was hanging out under a pomegranate tree with his 600 men, you know, his entourage. And he, uh, when Jonathan and his armor bearer started defeating the Philistines in their garrison, it says there was an earthquake, there was this confusion, and Saul's watchmen are like, what is going on over there? Like every, this crowd of people is now running around and it's, the earth is shaking. What is going on? Something's happening, go, something's going down over there. And uh, if you could turn your Bibles to 1 Samuel 14, verse 18. We see, this is, this is quite early in Saul's reign, but you begin to see this departure from the Lord and reliance upon God that whether a king or a servant, you know, servants of the Most High God, we need to fear him and obey him. 1 Samuel 14, verse 18. Saul's under the pomegranate tree. Verse 14, and Saul said to Ahijah, bring the ark of God here. For at that time, the ark of God was with the children of Israel. Now it happened, while Saul talked to the priest that the noise which was in the camp of the Philistines continued to increase. So Saul said to the priest, Withdraw your hand. Then Saul and all the people who were with him assembled, and they went to the battle, and indeed every man's sword was against his neighbor, and there was very great confusion. Why do you suppose the Ark of God was with Saul? Should it have been with Saul at all? The Ark of God was supposed to be in the Holy of Holies in the tabernacle. For some reason, it, was, it happened to be with Saul. And instead of Saul going to the holy place to inquire of the Lord where the priests were, he said, bring that ark to me under this pomegranate tree, nice shady spot. It's kind of like he's just ordering God's presence around. Bring it to me. Like, God existed for his convenience and his benefit, and as he's talking with the priest and he's saying what he wants to inquire with the Lord about, the fighting starts getting louder, and he says, withdraw your hand, or in my words, never mind. Oh, never mind, I've got this. And he just goes into battle, like Jonathan waited for a sign from God to pursue fighting into the Philistines, but Saul is self-assured, he's confident in himself and in his men, and he just goes into battle. Can you imagine saying, never mind, to God? The one that we're supposed to mind? We're supposed to mind him. He's supposed to be in our minds, and we're to seek him. But to say, oh, never mind. I've got this. I've got this handled, God, when we need him for everything. If you continue on to verse 23, it says, so the Lord saved Israel that day. It wasn't Jonathan. It wasn't his armor bearer. It wasn't Saul or his 600 men. It was God. Wasn't their wisdom or their strategy. It was God. And they needed God. Jonathan knew that. But Saul, he wanted to feel important. He loved to blow the trumpet after the victory. Like, let all Israel hear. Not about God. It was about him. He wanted to feel needed rather than recognizing his need for God. So Saul, he's God's anointed. He's carrying around God's presence like a relic. And is it possible, as children of God, sanctified, anointed by the Holy Spirit through faith in Christ, that we could be guilty of the same thing? We don't really think about God with some decisions that we make. We can fall into the trap of telling God what we think he ought to do, or saying, never mind, in so many words. I've got this handled. I, this fits in with my experience. This is in my strong suit. When it's really God that we need, Our sovereign is Jesus Christ, but we can live like the times of the judges where it says people were marked by doing everything that was right in their own eyes. It just seemed right at the time to them, but they didn't seek God. When a man broke the Sabbath by gathering sticks, remember what they did. They put him in custody. It says in Leviticus 24.12, that they waited to seek God about the judgment that they should bring upon this person. And Moses had the law, right? Moses had been given the law, he had written it down. If people had a problem, they would come to him and say, "What does the law say?" But this is what Leviticus 24:12 says. Then they put him in custody that the mind of the Lord might be shown to them. They needed to know the mind of God. Is that something we even think about? Like I need to know the mind of God about this decision. What does God want me to do? There's a lot of things we could do. We could have like a reaction or a knee-jerk decision. But how often do we think about, what is God's mind in my place here and what I should do? You can know God's mind. He will show it to you if you seek him, desiring to do what he says. God has spoken and he still speaks. Hosea 8, verse 7. They sow the wind and reap the whirlwind. The stalk has no bud. It shall never produce meal. If it should produce, aliens would swallow it up. Israel is swallowed up. Now they are among the Gentiles like a vessel in which is no pleasure. A seed is an embryonic plant in a protective seed coat. It has energy there that germinates when it has the right conditions, the sunlight and the moisture. Sowing wind, it's as good as sowing nothing. Reaping the whirlwind, a whirlwind is destructive. Anything that would grow, it would destroy. Jesus compared the word of God to good seed. Instead of the good seed of God's word being implanted in hearts and minds, it was like empty, vain philosophy, traditions of men, which is foolishness with God. So they're trying to avoid trouble but they've been sowing wind. They're going to reap the whirlwind. That destruction is coming. They made those alliances through those marriages that they shouldn't have, and so aliens would devour their wealth. Uh, They sought treaties with their enemies rather than seeking God's help. We spoke of this at length last week, that they would be scattered and largely absorbed by the other nations. It says swallowed up, and when you swallow something, it doesn't look the same as it passes through your body, right? you There's an apple, and you eat the apple, and then the apple is gone. It's been absorbed into the body, and that is what his people would resemble. Just swallowed up. They had um, the concessions and compromises they made. It stripped them of their identity as God's people. In a sense, they were going to be eliminated. They would be absorbed, and as salt has a distinct flavor, so God's people, they are to be like him. They are to do his will. And he says, I'm going to compare you to an old pot with which no one has pleasure. A pot that nobody wants to own. You know, it's going to be in the reject shop and it's going to be there until the place shuts down. No one's going to want you. And God loved his people immensely. He had chosen them. And and if they'd have loved him, they would have kept his commands. Now, if you want to... uh, Turn in your Bibles to Jeremiah 35. So back a few books. In Jeremiah's day, so this is a bit future, God set forth the sons of Rechab as a worthy example. Jeremiah chapter 35. God told, I loved the things that he would tell the prophets to do. He would tell them to do odd things, like, okay, take this girdle and uh, wear it or go bury it somewhere and go dig it up later, and this is a sign. Like there are all these cra- uh, Ezekiel, he has like constantly, he's having to do things as a sign unto the people. But God says to Jeremiah, he says, I want you to invite the sons of Jonadab, the son of Rechab, into the temple, bring them into one of the rooms, put all these bowls and gla- goblets of wine in front of them and invite them to drink wine. And this is, so they respond, they show up. Jeremiah 35, verse six. They said, we will drink no wine. For Jonadab, the son of Rechab, our father, commanded us, saying, you shall drink no wine, nor you, nor your sons forever. You shall not build a house, sow seed, plant a vineyard, nor have any of these. But all your days you shall dwell in tents, that you may live many days in the land where you are sojourners. Rechab, the son of Jonadab, Gave, excuse me, he gave his son Jonadab a command. He says, this is something that you're going to teach your children and it's to mark your life. You're not to drink wine, you're not to plant seed, you're not to own a vineyard, you're not to build a house. And two generations later, can you imagine that? Like your parent saying to you, well, my dad told me that we're not to do this, we're not to do that, and we're supposed to do this, live in tents only. And it was observed two generations later, not just the kids, but their wives and their children. And they're like, no, we don't drink because my grandpa said not to. It's pretty wild, right? Like, I don't even know one thing that my grandpa would say don't do or do, and I'm like, I have to do it because he told me. I just don't have that kind of relationship, you know? But he's like... Their grandpa is dead, yet they're obeying him. I am sending you prophets, and I'm speaking to you every day, and you're not listening to me. So it's not about being a teetotaler or not having a house. Or that, that's not the point. The point is they were given these commands that went way beyond what the law required, and they did them. But God's people who had been given the law weren't listening to God. He says, because of that, check this out. Jeremiah 35, verse 18. And Jeremiah said to the house of the Rechabites, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, because you have obeyed the commandment of Jonadab, your father, and kept all his precepts and done according to all that he commanded you. Therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Jonadab, the son of Rechab, shall not lack a man to stand before me forever. It's like, wow, to have God say that about you. You will not lack someone because you obeyed your father. You obeyed your dad. So this is an illustration of doing something unto the least. God takes it personal. He says, if you do that unto the least of these, my brethren, you have done it unto me. You obeyed grandpa. You obeyed your dad. You will not lack someone to stand before me forever. It's just awesome that God can make that promise, that he cares, that he notices, and then that he makes good on it. The, the Israelites were not making good on their word to God, but God was always making good on his word to them. And even when it came to judgment, he says, this is going to be happening because you've departed from me. Take heed and listen. And this should really catch the attention of those whose parents have given them a charge, right? Pretty amazing that God notices where like, everybody else has a house. Other people have vineyards. We can't even plant seed in this family, like... What kind of family is this? Well, it's a family that God looked at and he says, this is special. You're an example of what's good. Jesus said to his disciples in John fourteen twenty one, he who has my commandments and keeps them, it is he who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my father and I will love him and manifest myself to him. So what are the commandments of Christ? to love God with our heart, soul, and mind, to love one another as Jesus loves us. We're called to repent of sin, to believe. We're called to freely give as we have freely received. We're to forgive one another, even praying for our enemies, being servants of all. There's many more. So if we say we love God, then these are the things that we ought to do. They should mark our lives. And as we walk in God's ways, we'll experience his love and we'll also have the life of Christ manifested to us. The mind of God is revealed to all of those who walk according to what he has already said. And I cannot emphasize that enough. We walk in light of the truth that he has already said to us and then we will begin to understand more fully the mind of God on things that we have questions about or we don't know. But if we won't do the first things, if we won't obey, then we'll lack. We don't have to. Praise the Lord. Back to Hosea 8, verse 9. For they have gone up to Assyria like a wild donkey alone by itself. Ephraim has hired lovers. Yes, though they have hired among the nations, now I will gather them, and they shall sorrow a little because the burden of the king of princes. Instead of seeking God, the Israelites, they went up to Assyria like a wild donkey alone by itself. Now, I don't know if anyone here owns a donkey. Is there any, are there any proud donkey owners in this place? Horse owners, perhaps? No. Well, anyway, they're quite different in that a donkey, they're known, they're, they have the reputation of being stubborn, but really they're extremely cautious. If there's an odd environment, if they feel there's any risk at all, they'll just lock their legs. And if they don't want to go, they're not going to go because they just don't feel confident, or they feel unsure, so they'll just not go. Uh, They they have a strong herding instinct. They do not like to be kept alone. They like to be kept with other animals. Um, They will stop and consider anything risky. Domesticated donkeys are also great guard animals. Because of their independent nature, they're willing to address perceived risks, or intruders, and, and they'll start fighting much quicker than a horse when cornered. So they actually use them as like a guard a guard dog, but a guard donkey for like the flock or you put them in with the horses and they'll be fine. But Israel did not have the good qualities of even Balaam's donkey, right? Remember, Balaam is on the donkey and it sees the angel of the Lord with that drawn spear or drawn sword and it's like running out into the field. He's like, hey, so he hits it and then, goes back and then crushes its foot against the wall and then just lies down. Like, and he's like, what is going on? And then God opened his eyes and go, wow, I was in danger. The donkey noticed it, I didn't notice it. They were going to be like a wild donkey all by themselves. They went away from God rather than towards him. Trained donkeys, they are willing beasts of burden, but Israel would be placed with a heavy burden of judgment. That would result in sorrow. They would be scattered by war, but he would gather them. So he's going to gather them so they would be judged, but ultimately he would regather them after captivity. Have you ever had a burden that's unbearable? Where it's just the weight of it and the amount of time it seems that you've been made to carry something, it's, it's overwhelming. But Those burdens are easily borne by God, who the scriptures say, he is the lifter of our heads. Like, he lifts us up. He is the bearer of the burdens. When we rebel from God, it's like we're left alone. Uh, When we depart from seeking help from God, that burden will overwhelm us. And in times of trouble, we will be like King Saul, who was very alone toward the end of his reign. When the Philistines gathered against him, he sees this army, and it says he was filled with fear at the sight of them. And we see him changing throughout his reign, where he starts humble, but he became proud. And even in the naming of his sons, you know, like, you guys ever skip a genealogy? I confess, I have skipped a genealogy before, you know, reading through and just going, okay, three chapters of names that are hard to pronounce well, I did write, I, did, uh, I do usually read through them, and on one occasion, I came across one that really struck me, and it was in 1 Chronicles eight, thirty-three. The name of Saul's first son is Jonathan, which means gift of God. His youngest son was called Eshbaal, or man of Baal. So he named his younger son after that deity, that Canaanite deity of the land. So you'll see his name written Ishbosheth, which is son of shame, because the scribes would not, they didn't always write the name Baal. So they would just write Ishbosheth, like Bosheth, instead of Baal. Interesting. So you see, even in naming his kids, that there was like starting with gift of God, ends with son or man of Baal. He had been told to to eradicate the mediums and the wizards of the land, which he did early in his reign. But towards the end of his reign, after departing from God, it says he sought God, but God did not answer him in dreams and visions through prophets or Urim. So with inquiring with the priests. And so what did Saul do? He says, find me a medium that I may inquire of her. He wanted, he w- since God wasn't speaking, he would go to the devil And he would ask for advice. And that's exactly what God's people were doing. They were worshiping these idols. They had departed from seeking God. And because God wasn't coming through in their time frame without repentance, then they went and made these deals. It's like God was silent. Uh, he, He wasn't just going to bail them out. Saul just wanted to be bailed out of his trouble. He didn't want to repent. He didn't want to seek God. I think it's way easier to see Saul's departure and Israel's departure from God than our own departure from God because it's very subtle. We don't notice it. Why God's word is so invaluable to us is because it's rock solid. It remains that plum, that plum bob or that uh, level, that spirit level that is always true. Now, our spirit levels that we buy, they need to be recalibrated after a time. They're only going to be good for so long. Uh, but God's word, it always is true. We can always count on it. The world is full of deceptions, distortions, darkness, but God's word is light, and it's straight. It creates that straight path for our feet, um, and our eyes deceive us. We need guidance from the Lord, and When we realize that Jesus is the one we need to look to in our struggle, that our minds are renewed through the washing in the water of his word, we realize that we're not alone, we are not forsaken, we are no longer slaves to fear or to pride or to lust, but we have been loved, redeemed, forgiven, and greatly helped as we follow Jesus. Back to Hosea 8. Verse 11, because Ephraim has made many altars for sin, they have become for him altars for sinning. I have written for him the great things of my law, but they were considered a strange thing. For the sacrifices of my offerings, they sacrifice flesh and eat it, but the Lord does not accept them. Now he will remember their iniquity and punish their sins. They shall return to Egypt. For Israel has forgotten his maker and built temples. Judah also has multiplied fortified cities, but I will send fire upon his cities and it shall devour his palaces. Ephraim had embraced religion and ritual in hypocrisy, claiming to worship God but not following his ways. And it's like the more they sacrificed, the greater was their sin. The law of Moses, it can have a bit of a bad rap today. People just go, oh, no, we're not under law. So it's like kind of old and outdated. It's kind of like the old shoes you use only for mowing the lawn. They're really not good. They just kind of, you would not wear them out because you're a little embarrassed about them. So I think that's kind of, it's a terrible example, but that's how low we can have a view of the law of God (laughs) But God says, my law contains great things. There are great things contained in my law, and it's all great, really. Statutes that God wrote to his people were considered by his people a strange thing or a foreign thing. The practice of the law was foreign to their daily routine. Their life wasn't filtered through, how has God said I should live? So he said, he called them out on that. That I've written you great things in my law, but it's considered by you a strange thing, a foreign thing. God didn't write to the Jews in code. He wrote in their own language. They didn't need, and he gave them priests and prophets to help them apply the word, but he gave them to them in a frame that they could understand, that they could write down and they could keep with them. Every king that was made uh, ordained He was to actually handwrite a copy of the law for himself to refer to and how he should govern the kingdom. But it was considered a foreign thing, so they were just doing whatever. He says that he would remember their iniquity. He would punish them with a return to captivity because they forgot him. They called out to him in Egypt years before, but they would return there. It says they forgot him. They did not walk in the way that pleased him, and they huddled in their cities made of stone and wood, forgetting that God was their refuge. He was the one who would protect them. He was their defense. He was their strong tower. Now, for a point of application, please turn to Luke chapter 10, starting in verse 38. And hopefully this puts into... kind of a life we can understand more than sacrificing to idols, and because that may be a bit disconnected from your experience. That's not usually the way that we approach God, typically. I, I didn't see anyone with, like, lambs or goats in the car park for later to take out to your altar. Like, no. But that was quite common, not only among the Jews, according to the law, but The other nations. But check this out. Luke chapter 10, verse 38. Now what happened is they went that he, Jesus, entered a certain village. And a certain woman named Martha welcomed him into her house, and she had a sister called Mary, who also sat at Jesus' feet and heard his word. But Martha was distracted with much serving as she approached him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Therefore tell her to help me. And Jesus answered and said to her, Martha, Martha, You are worried and troubled about many things, but one thing is needed. And Mary has chosen that good part, which will not be taken away from her. Martha did well to invite Jesus into her home, didn't she? There were places that wouldn't even receive Jesus, but she invited him in. So good on her. She was an attentive hostess. She's bustling around. She's, shu- cl- you know, shuffling the clutter away. She's making sure feet are washed and drinks are out and the hummus is topped up and everyone's eating and, you know, the cushions are out. It's just looking good. And it says Mary also sat at Jesus' feet and heard his word. So Martha, the one who invited Jesus in, she had been sitting at Jesus' feet Mary her sister also sat at his feet and heard his word but Martha she was not at rest at Jesus feet she was distracted by a lot of things you now she's flitting about thinking about oh you know all those cushions they look kind of old i need to fix it. i need to write this down and oh what are we going to do for dessert okay and she's just she thinking oh, what about this monday in school and there's a lot going through her head does that r- relate right Jesus is speaking to Martha and Mary but Martha is distracted Mary's just arrested she's just doing nothing and Martha part of her distraction is that Mary's not doing anything and she's refilling the hummus and wondering why isn't Mary helping she is like totally tuning out to what needs to be done in this house Jesus Tell her to help me. Don't you care about me? Martha was a consummate host, but who was she rejecting? She was rejecting the good. If Martha had known the Lord Jesus, she would have known that he cared very much for her, for her sister, and her brother, Lazarus, who's not mentioned here. And then she asserts herself as Lord over Christ and says, tell her to do this. And Jesus responds in a remarkable way. He's going, oh yeah, yeah, you look lazy. Mary, what's your problem? He he does not say, he's not making it funny. He just goes right to Mary, I mean Martha now. He's like, Martha, Martha, you are worried and troubled about many things. Might Jesus say the same to you today? You are worried and troubled and distracted about many things. Dur- just during this message, you've probably been distracted by many things that you have to do or you've checked your emails or um, you know, stuff you need to remember. Now, I'm not Jesus, so I can understand if I'm boring, <laughs> but when Jesus is talking, what's our excuse, right? This is Jesus speaking. And he's giving us his word. He's letting us into his mind. He's telling us the truth that we need to hear. Jesus noticed Martha's efforts, but they were misguided because she had not chosen the good part to sit at Jesus' feet, to put aside distractions. And you have to be intentional to do that. Put aside the distractions and just hear Jesus speak. The word of God being spoken. It's so easy in our lives to crowd out that simple act of devotion because, and I think this is what God has been talking to me about, is my tendency to multitask and think that that's okay. Like, oh yeah, I'll listen to the sermon, but I'll do the solitaire at the same time. Or I'll do, it's kind of like if you're having a dinner, two people, and, and half the time people are on their phone. They're not really present with you. You don't like that. Do you suppose God likes that? Does he like that when we, we, we say we're coming into his presence, but we're so distracted with so many things. He's not angry at us, but he just says, hey, you're worried. You're distracted about a lot, about a lot of things. Mary, the one that you're down on, she's chosen the good part, and what she's been given will never be taken away from her. The worry, and, and Jesus is the one who takes our worries, right? He says, cast your cares upon me, Because he cares for us. So reading God's word with the desire to hear God, to know his mind, to do his will. Martha imagined she was serving Jesus, but Jesus was actually serving her. He came as the living bread that came down from heaven, that living manna that if you eat of him, you will live forever. And he was giving her the truth. But she imagined she was serving him. When he came to serve her. Israel had rejected the good. So God allowed enemies to pursue. And they said Lord we know you. But they had rejected the good. Mary. She chose that good part. To sit at Jesus feet. And to hear his word. And those who choose the good part. To receive Jesus by faith. Because when it was. Addressed as good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? He says, why do you call me good? There is only one good, and that's God. So I'm either good and God, or I'm not good. Now, on the flip side of that, when we choose what's good, God will say, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of the Lord. And I want to go to that Revelation passage in chapter 21, verse 3. What refreshment, comfort, and peace is ours through Christ who speaks to us through his word. Revelation chapter 21, verse 3. And this is the future that will not be taken away, part of which what Jesus spoke of, which would not be removed. This future we have with him forever. And after, imagine if you had been hearing that prophet, prophetic loop of judgment time after time, over and over, to hear that this is the flip side for those who receive the word and walk in light of it. Revelation 21, verse three. And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, behold, the tabernacle of God is with men and he will dwell with them. And they shall be his people. God himself will be with them and be their God. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And there shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain for the former things have passed away. Then he who sat on the throne said, behold, I make all things new. And he said to me, write, for these words are true and faithful. And he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give of the fountain of the water of life freely to him who thirsts. He who overcomes shall inherit all things, and I will be his God, and he shall be my son. It is good that you have received Jesus Christ into your life, but are you choosing the good part? The part of sitting at his feet, putting aside the distractions, having time set where you're like, Lord, you are all I seek. You are all I desire. My All my hope is in you. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, that you've given us your word, that you've given us Christ. And thank you for his gentleness and the way that he speaks. And we confess, Lord, we are often distracted. We are often troubled by many things. And in, even in our serving, we do not think to just stop and sit at your feet to hear your word. Lord, give us great patience to seek you and to wait for you, not to be presumptuous like Saul who thought, never mind, God, I've got this. Help us to be like Jonathan who sought you, like David who inquired of the Lord and and how you directed him, how you protected him, how you defeated the giant. Lord, the giants in our lives that distract us and that turn our eyes from trusting you, I pray that you would show us you are far greater and that our hope is not in our strength or in our wisdom or in our experience, but it's in you and you alone. We thank you, God, that you have given us uh, that bread, that living bread from heaven, that you have filled us with living water through faith in Jesus Christ, Bring us to a place, Lord, where we confess our absolute need and dependence on you because you are our sovereign and our king, and we love you in Jesus' name. Amen.